Uh, I am going to begin to read from verse, starting in verse 1. Listen to God's word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray for God's help as we seek our understanding of this text. Father, we pray now. As we look at this passage here in Romans 13, as we consider where you're taking us in in this entire letter uh, that Paul sent to the Roman church, we pray, God, that it would be meaningful for us. Um, And maybe especially during this time where politics is playing such a huge role in our world, in uh, our particular nation, uh, this is an important time. And so we need to think about the governmental authorities that you have instituted, and we need to Think as well about how this fits into the whole context of Romans. Where is Paul taking us? Why have you uh, led us this direction by your spirit? It must mean something for us. And so we pray for your help in understanding that. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Here in Romans 13, as we have gone through the first 12 chapters of Romans together, for those of you who have been here for most of these uh, weeks, it has been an exciting ride. It has been a, uh, an exciting time of trying to understand the, the great uh, work, the theological work that is what we call the book of Romans or the letter to the church in Rome. As Paul has given us uh, what we might call a, a treatise or, or a, a theological work, he has done it in a fashion in order to display God's glory through the salvation that he has worked and is working in the world to people who don't uh, know him. And then as he is working out that salvation to the people who now do this letter, after all, is written by Paul to the church. It is written to the people who are what we would call saved or born again or Christians uh, in the true sense of the word. And so as Paul has is, is writing this letter, he is giving this full display of God's glorious work of salvation, not only in how God saves us. And some of you have heard Um, things like, you know, God uh, made you and has a wonderful plan for your life or something like that. Well, starting there doesn't really get us to where we need to go. We need to really start where the problem lies in us, and that is sin. And then we have to go before that and find out why has God made us in the first place and what does God intend for us in the first place, which is why when I try to describe um, what it means to become a Christian or to explain the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Savior, we have to say he's the Savior of what? Or the Savior of who? And why? Why would he need to save? Why would he need to die on a cross? It's not enough for us in a world and really what has become a post-Christian culture in America 
uh, in much of the, the Western world, and then, of course, around the world, where Christ is not named among many, uh, we need to understand how to explain it in a way that we understand it in our context, in our world, with the, the way that people think and the beliefs that people have. In lots of ways, the greatest distraction that we have in our world to understanding Christ is that some people understand just enough of Christ to keep them from trying to understand him better. In, a, in other words, uh, as others have said before me, um, much of our culture has enough Christ to be inoculated from him. Isn't that, after all, what we do when we try to give somebody a flu shot? What are we giving them? We're giving them the flu. Okay? If that's not scary enough, I, you know, that's kind of weird to me. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the flu so you don't get the flu. But it's, it's, a, it's a way of giving your body the, the, the preparation it needs, the, 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 the antibodies that it needs to be able to attack the flu virus should it come after it would have already built up the proper defense. You've prepared the right kind of defense for the right kind of weaponry. If you guys all decided, you know what, we're going to get ready for war. And so you make those, uh, those metal outfits, uh, what do you call that? Uh, well, you know, yeah, but like the, the, like the fleshly kind, the kind that moves. Chain, chain mail, chain meal, chain, chain something. Yeah, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, you guys would know. Um, and uh, Elijah is not here. He's the master of weaponry in my house. And he's watching TV, like telling us what weapon they're using. It's like, oh, that's kind of scary. Um, <clears throat> so you guys are making these, these metal outfits, right? Basically the same kind of thing they use in a shark tank where the people go underwater and they put on this metal armor so that the shark bites. It might hurt. It might even tear their skin a little bit, but it's not going to tear their arm off, right? So that's kind of what you do. So you've made this great armor, and then you realize that the opponent has tanks. Congratulations, you lose, right? All that effort into every little piece of putting that thing together so you have this great armor against tanks. You lose, it's just the way it is. And so um, when, when we think about our, our own lives and our own walk as Christians, as we think about uh, how sin comes into our lives, as we think about what the world is bringing together, as we think about how we take the gospel to the world, all of it needs to be fashioned for what we're doing. And so we go into the world realizing they don't have the foundation, many, of understanding that there is a God, number one, and that God is the creator, number two of all things, that God is a good God, that he's not simply a different God, a, a God of another kind of religion. You see, so we have to build upon that foundation in order to bring people to understand Christ. And as we go through the, the book of Romans, all of these themes are coming up. They're, they're coming up about God and who he is, about sin and what it is and how we're all sinners. Now, some of you can't just say, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner, but I do more good than bad. Paul goes, no, 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 that's not how it works. Some of you are going, well, you know what? I'm, I'm one who's seeking after God. I'm trying to understand higher knowledge and higher understanding. And Paul says, no one seeks after God. Some of you say, well, you know, on, on my own, on my own, I'm, I'm a good person. And I'm fine. God, God and I, we're friends. You know, we're buddies. We're together. We're pals. We, we've cut each other on the hand and we've shaken and now we've mixed the blood into with each other and, and we're all good. And Romans says you are hostile to God and you cannot please God in your human nature. You are, you are a sinner and there's no way around being a sinner unless God comes and creates a remedy. 
You are not someone who is laying there dying and you just need a really good doctor. You're someone who is lying there dead and you need somebody to revive you. That's where we all are. That's where Paul puts all of us in the letter to the Roman church. But this is the church. These are those who have been revived, been renewed. And even in Romans 12, as he has explained this gospel and displayed it in all of its glory, and now he, in Romans 12, begins to transition into, okay, now, now that we believe this, now that this is the foundation of everything else that we do or say or how we live, what our families are like, now Paul begins to explain, now this is what life looks like. This is what the Christian life looks like. These are the things that should mark the Christian life. These are the identifiers. One of my favorite shows is Storage Wars. Yeah. Um, and like at, at the dinner table at our house, like we do a trivia, trivia thing with our kids about storage wars. Like how many, you know, how many people's names start with the letter B, you know, and then they just Brandy and Brandon and Barry, right? Am I right? See, come on, storage wars lovers unite. Here we go. Um, and one of the things that they do is they go, they, they buy a storage unit that's been abandoned, right? And they start filing through stuff and then they go, oh, look at this. And so they find like this blow dart gun. Just long bamboo tube, right? And they got these little dart holder and stuff. They're trying to figure out, is this thing worth money? And so they take it to this guy, and this guy goes, okay, look, here's, here's markings here, and here's markings here, and here's the different design elements. And if this is from the time period in which they made these kinds of markings, this could be worth like five grand. And he says, but as it is, it's a knockoff. It's worth maybe 50 bucks. Ooh, that's not good. There's markings. There's things that mark the lives of Christians. And when you look into the world and when people say, I'm a Christian, what you do and you, what our response needs to be is, what is the fruit of a Christian? What should we look like? Sometimes there are people who maybe they aren't Christians and they, they carry the name. I was like that most of my life until college. I told everybody I was a Christian. Of course I am. Because I'd vote Republican, right? <laughs> of course. I, I, I listen to Rush Limbaugh. And, you know, and I'm, I'm for moral things and I'm against abortion and, you know, uh, massive gambling schemes. And, you know, so I, that's got to be right. That's got to make me a Christian, right? There are certain things that mark a Christian. And Paul just starts to describe those very clearly, not just in the first 11 chapters of Romans where he describes the gospel and the effects of the gospel. But now in the life of the Christian where he says we are living sacrifices we walk around living so differently from the world that we walk around with the death of Christ. That we, we, we literally have died to ourselves spiritually and are alive to Christ. We, we, we literally are now walking dead people. Not figuratively. If it's figuratively, that means you'll pull back and start to have your own life again. We are to be the ones who have truly given ourselves as sacrifices. The, it, it, just because it's a spiritual sacrifice doesn't make it less of a sacrifice. It doesn't make it less final. Okay? I, I pull in a goat and I say, we're going to do a sacrifice. And I take a knife right in front of you and I pull its head up and I tear into its throat until it bleeds to death and dies. And I say, okay, symbolically, that's been sacrificed. You're all going to go, well, of course. You know, needle and thread and a little bit of pumping on the chest. We're going to be good to go. No, it's dead. It's really, really dead. And the life of a Christian is someone who's really, really dead to everything that they want because they now want what God wants. Their wills have been realigned. Their lives have been rearranged. 
Now there's the cornerstone of Christ and every brick has been laid along that cornerstone so that you now are in a new location. I was driving past something the other day and I saw these bricks stacked up. And I, I said to Molly, I said, those, the way those bricks are stacked up makes me look like they have a construction project going on. But they were stacked up in order to, to have a certain function in this person's yard. And I just said, the way that they're stacked, there's something weird, there's something, there's something wrong, they're, it's not made correctly. Jesus takes us, we're all kind of misstacked, we all have these, we're, we're these bricks. But Jesus now takes us and says, you're not made to sit there. And have, and have this kind of bad functioning. You're supposed to be here. And so he picks us up and he places us in a new place. And now we only function the way that we're supposed to function. The way we were meant to function in creation. When God makes us, we're made to do certain things. To, to fill the earth. To, to bring it uh, under the submission work of God. And so the, we take the world and we make it like the garden. It's a beautiful place where everything's in order and everything's fruitful. And now we're supposed to go into the earth and do the rest of this. But now we sin, and not only do we not fulfill that function, now we're actually working against it. Now we, we go into the world and we make businesses, but they're corrupt. And, and people embezzle. I just read a story about um, a Baptist church in Tennessee in which a, a woman who was running some of the financial stuff over the last several years has embezzled $1.5 million. $1.5 million. A woman that was trusted with the finances of the church. and They couldn't figure out, why is all of our mission offering not getting to where it's supposed to go? Right? Apparently she was the mission. Because uh, she was taking all the money for herself. We are being rearranged as God's people not to go live our own life as a brick. Great, now I'm this new brick in Christ. And I'm going to go into the world and brick things. Right? No, 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 no. You, you have your position. So God, I just, I, I'm going to make a mess of this as long as I try to go and just make my own plans and do my own things. And so I'm going to let all my plans, all my things, all my family, all my work be rearranged by Christ. So we not only give our lives as living sacrifices, but our minds are now transformed, it says in Romans 12 too. Transformed, conformed. We're now, we now have this changing of our mind that leads to the changing of our bodies and the changing of everything in our lives. And so then Paul begins to explain what this looks like, how we live together. And specifically, we could say he is really describing what love looks like in the body of Christ. Romans 12 is a great place to go to understand what the body of Christ should look like when we meet together, when we're not together. How should we think of each other? How should we be hospitable to those who are in Christ, but who we don't necessarily know? And how are we supposed to act toward those in the world? How are we supposed to act toward our enemies? Love is described in its most positive forms and against or, or with those who are the most negative against us. So now we understand this love and then we get to chapter 13 and he goes okay let me talk about government for a while and then in two weeks when we get back here to romans 13 guess where he's going to go he's going to talk about love which probably means this paul doesn't get the hiccups okay when he's writing, he's meaning what he's saying. The spirit is working through his pen. And so Paul doesn't just kind of hiccup here and decide, oh, I'm going to all of a sudden make a political statement and then I'm going to move on. He is explaining, it looks to me, I think very clearly, that he is explaining love. 
He's just explaining it in a way that maybe is new to us or, or is odd to us. Chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Well, that doesn't sound like love. How many of you think, oh, that's what I, that's what I really want? Where government authorities are there that are great around us, where we go, they're so trustworthy, they're so good. That's how my love should be expressed, is by submitting to governmental authorities. Anybody, that just sounds really exciting. Like, I'm glad Paul went there, because he could have talked about my marriage. That would have been good. Or my kids. That would have been nice. Even my job. You know, at least then I can kind of figure out how to make it work out. But the government? We live in a country in which in which doubting the government is a virtue. Like, it's supposed to be. Like, we, we're, we, that's why, we, what are checks and balances? Checks and balances are a way of stopping people from being corrupt. Has it worked? There's no corruption in our government because checks and balances, right? Congratulations. All of you kids who are going through government classes and going through civic stuff, if you're coming through there going, man, the American ideal, it's working out perfectly. Okay, you need to look at your teacher with the stink eye. The stink eye? Is that stink? Is that my right? Is that stink? Stink eye? Okay, I gotta, I gotta. Right. I've given everybody here the stink eye. It's the first time that's probably happened in my preaching history. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This doesn't sound fun, but let's put it in the context of everything else that God says about submitting, at least in just a, a sort of a quick survey. 1 Corinthians 15. If you guys want to try to flip around with me, you can. Otherwise, you can just listen to where I take you. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, starting in verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father after destroying the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority of power. So Jesus has authority, and then he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Who's the king? Jesus, right? Yeah, Christ. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Did you catch that? What's under Christ's feet? Everything? There's one thing that's not under Christ's feet. What is not under Christ's feet? God the Father. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be, what? All in all. God the Father is giving everything to the Son, all authority, all rule, all this kingdom, so Christ can do what? Put everything in subjection under God so that He may be all in all. God the Father. It is, just, it's a, it is an amazing and beautiful idea that it's not enough for God the Father to express His love to the Son by giving the gift of everything to the Son, but then the Son is so grateful and so loving of His Father that He gives it back to His Father. This is the great work of God in the world and how it eventually is working out. So Christ submits everything to the Father, even though the Father gives everything to Christ. So there's submission there, right? Submission there. Let's look at James. James chapter 4. 
And verse 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submission, the Christian, to the believer, to God. Okay? The submission there. Christ to the Father, the believer to God. Turn to Titus. Titus chapter 2. Verse 9, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Now, immediately people go, oh, wait a second, talking about slaves is bad. Just, just, Just generally speaking, let me just try to make this really clear. Christ does set everyone free, but how many of you have been set free from your job? Because of Christ. Set free from your job. Anybody not working and you're independently wealthy? Something like that? No, you know, my kids, of course, are saying yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, we need to bring sweatshops back, right? Come on. Um, all these regulations are just messing up, messing up my family's income. Um, uh, to, to say that slaves are to be submissive to their masters is not to say that slavery is okay. It's to say we get it. The world's corrupt. And even when you're in a bad relationship... Slaves and masters, the good Christian slave will submit to their master. It is a a sign of Christ that you would even be able to do that. Um, First Peter, I could have put these in some type of order to make it easier to flip back and forth, but I didn't. Um, First Peter chapter five um, and verse five. It says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. In this passage, he's specifically talking about the elders of the church, not the olders of the church, but the, the, the specifically the, to shepherd the flock of God, those who are in leadership. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow, fellow elder, as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. So is, is the way he starts it, to shepherd the flock of God. So he's talking about submitting to the, if you're a Christian, you are to submit to your Christian leaders, the ones who are given over to preaching, to teaching, and to shepherding the flock. First Timothy, you guys see where I'm going, right? Submission, first Timothy three and verse four. These are the qualifications for an elder. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. That doesn't mean if you're not going to be an elder of a church or a pastor that you don't have to have submissive children. The, the ideal of what a faithful Christian is should be what an elder is. If you look at the qualifications for an elder, it doesn't, these aren't super Christians. They're just faithful Christians. Specifically with elders, the ones who are then able to teach as well. So you, children should be submissive to their parents. Colossians 3. Colossians 3 and verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then it says, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Submission is built into every relationship that we have. It's impossible. Just by being here this morning, you are giving a kind of submission to God. Even if you don't recognize it, don't think about it consciously, you're somehow saying there's an authority and I need to somehow be in submission to that authority. Now you may be submitting very poorly to that. You may take all the words that you're hearing that that are from God's word. You may be arguing with God rather than accepting those things from God. But in some sense, you would only show up because of some type of submission. If you show up to Starbucks, it's because you're submitting to caffeine. Okay? I mean, you you understand? This is fairly simple stuff. 
and we're through the first part here of our passage now. <coughs> Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's so many things that are subject to other things. And now there is something that we are to be subject to, and that is every person subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, reason number one for submitting to governing authorities. God put him there. God put him there. Now, we have to be careful when we say God put him there to not say that every single governor, leader, president, king, dictator, whatever, is that that's the ideal person that God wanted for this time in the world. That's not what this means. It means that in general, the governing authorities are there by God. The, God creates govern, governing ideas in our minds. We have a desire to govern because we know we have, that's built into us. That is a necessary part of what God has made for the world. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Fair enough? The government's there. If you resist the government, what happens? The government judges you. You will not just keep going on. The government has their rules. You're breaking their rules. You're going to pay for the rules you've broken. Some of you have just recently broken some rule. Maybe you were driving. Maybe some of you are right now thinking about how to fudge your taxes, right? Some of you are thinking about, uh, you know, there's different, some of you have relatives, have people that you love who've spent time in jail or who have have had some problem, you've been before a judge because of some issue going on in your life, something you've done wrong, something that's happened relationally with you. All of these things, the government is there, it's instituted by God so that the resistor will incur judgment. The governments of the world are there in order to bring a part of God's judgment to people. And that means it's not just submission to Christian governments that we have. It is submissions to all governments. This is, after all, written by Paul to the church in Rome. Now, when we think of Rome, we think of things like Roman Catholic or the Vatican. Or, you know, we, st we start pu putting things in weird... But that's, that's, this is long after the time that Paul is writing. Paul is writing, and he's writing this church. This isn't Jerusalem. This is not where there's a bunch of religious leaders... Uh, that are a part of Judaism who are now converting to Christianity or anything like that. These are, this is written to a church in which these words would be almost scandalous if you understood God incorrectly and what he puts in place. God creates these authorities so that there will be a judgment that comes to those who break the law. For rulers, verse 3, are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. And what probably happens is not you nodding your head yes, but you going, okay, wait, but there's a lot of bad things that happen in government too, right? Is this exactly how they function all the time? This is how government, God put them in place. Paul is speaking of this in a way that seems very ideal, but not necessarily the way things are. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you see governments who are a terror to good conduct? 
all the time, where there's plenty of Christians in, in free countries. And so you don't look at this and say, well, this never is abused. You say, this is why God sets it up. This is what it's there for. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, generally speaking. That's why they're there. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? In other words, you should have fear, right? How many of you are driving down the road and you see the police lights behind you? How many of you go, oh, of course, he's just going to go around me. Something, something's up ahead. Most of you are going, oh, where's my license and registration? Am I going the right speed? You're hammering on the brakes so you can go 20 and a 35 because you think that, you know, by going 33, he might be pulling, maybe my seatbelt on. And you look at the people next to you, you know, are they smoking weed? Or I mean, it's like, it's just this complete freak out moment. My heartbeat probably has never been so high as when there's a cop. It's like, behind you and you're just... You, you kind of got this weird, what's going on? It's coming for me. Oh no, what have I now done? Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You see, the, the, here's how you can tell when government is generally working well. When you're doing good and you see a police officer, you're glad they're there. You're comforted. And when you're doing bad and you see a police officer, you're afraid. If that's generally how things go for you, if, if when you see a police officer, you find... Uh, when I'm... Uh, I, I have a lot of meetings and I do some work sometimes at Starbucks. And when I see police officers come in... My first instinct is to go, hey, I want to buy him a coffee. Give him something to drink. And that doesn't always work out, and a lot of times they're giving him coffee, you know? I mean, it's just different stuff's going on. But it's like my first instinct, like, oh, you know, if I would have caught them before they walked in, the, you know, when they were walking through the door, I might have gone and just... Because I, I have a sense that, generally speaking, they are there and will approve those who do good and will bring the kind of punishment that people deserve when people do bad. When something bad is going on, I don't go, I don't want to call the police because they're corrupt and they're just going to go for the other guy. Generally speaking, for me at least, when I see the police, I think generally they're going to be doing good. They're, they're working for those who are doing the right things. It is God's servant for my good. And we live in a country in which I, I hope at least most of the time that's happening. And the minute there's some problem, there's some investigative local reporter in San Diego who's trying to get their name up in lights and they're out there trying to find out the corrupt cops and break up the bad system underneath it. We live in a world in which, you know, this isn't prohibition time. This is a, this is a time when everything is out in the open and, and we can start to see these things. It's very hard to hide stuff and, and get away with it. So if... You're doing wrong, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword in vain. But if you're doing good, you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. This is how government is meant to work. And this includes governments that are not godly, not even remotely godly, governments. So we'll, we'll talk about uh, some of what that means. If you have your questions in there, it's, it's coming uh, at the end, but... Just generally speaking, I want to remember what Paul says. And that means, if that's true, that we need to be submissive to government. Uh, by the way, I just love verse 4. 
got like the first superhero ever, right? The Avenger. You see that? For he is a servant of God, an Avenger. I, 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 every time I was reading this to myself, every time I got to that part, I'd be like, an Avenger, you know? <laughs> that was great. You remember after, after 9-11, regardless of your politics or, or love or hate for uh, President Bush, after 9-11, you started hearing this kind of language, wrongdoer, evildoer. You start hearing that kind of biblical language. And then everybody was kind of, that was against him, was really talking about, do we really want this Christianized government? That's not Christian government. That's just government. Regardless of what you think right or wrong, or if the war is after right or wrong, none of that is part of the conversation. Generally speaking, every government, every leader in every country, if they're just doing their general grace, you know, the kind of common grace governmental job, when somebody's doing bad to their people, will respond with a kind of vengeance. That's what the government is there for. And when they're doing good, they are to be good to them. So this, this should be a commonplace kind of language that comes from the government, even if they are doing it abusively or, or they, they act out wrongly after or whatever else you might think happens. This is still a foundation of what it should be. Verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. God's wrath is what the judgment is. A part of the way God gives out his wrath is by creating governments, in so which there are some humans who hopefully that have set up a government in a way that is healthy, you know, where there are checks and balances, where there are groups of people deciding things rather than one person deciding things, because that's where you tend to get that kind of corruption where power is, is too centralized uh, or, or too small. And so when, when government is there, uh, it is going to bring God's wrath, it's going to bring God's justice. We want people, I don't think there's anybody in this room who'd probably disagree with me, we want people who do bad things to go to court to be found guilty and to receive punishment and judgment. Do we not want that? Or would you rather, do, no, no, no. We just let them free. I don't care what kid they kidnapped. I don't care. Just, you know, let them go. Grace. We don't do that. We want the sword. We want the response, the swift response. How many of you, like, see a trial that's happening and go, wasn't that trial starting, like, three years ago? And then it gets delayed. And then there's all this you know, legal stuff. And you're going, come on. That's a part of what should be happening here. Is, you know, we don't want to have a wrong kind of judgment, right? Where we, we want to be fair. We want to make sure that they're truly guilty and all that. But regardless of what system of government we're in, if we all just immediately move to another country right now with a completely different kind of government, the words are the same from Paul and from God. Submit to the governing authorities. They're there for your good. They're going to bring wrath, God's wrath, God's judgment, even if they don't realize that's what they're doing when they punish the wrongdoer. But it's also for the sake of your conscience. Now, it, it, conscience can be a lot of things here, and so we want to try to be you know, fair to all the different meanings it, it could be. And so it could be you know, your conscience is, I'm, I, I just kind of have this fearfulness of doing wrong, and so your conscience is saying don't do the wrong thing. So it's good for your conscience to not feel guilty. You don't want to go to bed at night feeling guilty like somebody's after you. The, what's, uh, what's the saying that somebody, a criminal who's always on the run, 
they never sleep well, but the minute they get caught, they sleep peacefully in prison. Because, you know, now it's like, well, I, you know, there's nothing else to do. I, I can finally relax. I'm not running. Your mind slows down. The conscience, in a sense, is clear because you're getting now what you deserve. Conscience here might also kind of mirror back to the beginning of this passage in which we go, well, a conscience tells us that government is ultimately good and from God, even when it's very corrupt in the most corrupt of countries. You still want somebody in charge who's going to stop things if they get out of control. Even in the most corrupt of countries. Just, I don't think it would take a whole lot to say you should want bad government rather than anarchy. Just imagine everybody has a weapon and everybody who you know, has the most power at that given moment is in control. We see it on TV sometimes, right? And you see the rioting in the streets. In, in, our, in our country, we, the biggest news stories are the, the dude, the cop who pepper sprays the Occupy protesters because they won't move. And it becomes this huge thing because we're trying to figure out you know, justice and right and wrong and all of that. We don't, we don't have th- that kind of problem, at least not at the moment. It might be coming. But the point is, anarchy, you do not want. You do not want just everybody free to this. If you think that somehow everybody's just going to go and do good and it's all going to be great and we all just have the freedom to just kind of rule each other, yeah, that's, that's just not, this is not the way you want it to work. Just, you you want to figure out what that's like, go watch, go watch a Western, you know? Just go watch a Western, see what the Wild West looked like, at least in, in you know, the eyes of some of our artists and how they're trying to depict it, and you'll get that. So, one must be in subjection, not only, verse 5, to avoid God's wrath, in other words, that you, you know that that's a part of what government will do, so I'm submitting so that I don't get God's wrath, so... For, for those of you who, I, you know, a couple years ago, I got a ticket for not using my turn signal. That was God's wrath. And he ripped $75 out of my hands, you know, because of my awful sinfulness. It's ridiculous. I shouldn't have got a ticket is what I'm trying to say. But, but, <laughs> but, but get it. That's why the government is there. Guess, guess who thinks more about the turn signal than probably anybody else in this room? He has two thumbs, and it's this guy, right? Um, when, when, I am, when I am driving, and I'm at a stop, I'm always like, oh, no, don't use my turn signal. Is there a cop around me? And I'm looking at, you know, there's this kind of fear, because I realize there's consequences. And once I face that consequence once, now I have this kind of fear uh, for what it is. And then for the sake of conscience that we realize this is God's work to have a government over us. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. Oh, goodness, you guys. Please, Pastor Steve, just stop. Stop back at verse 5. Can we skip over to verse 8, you know, next time? Let's just skip. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending this very thing. Paul, what are you doing? You pay taxes. Now he's talking about ministers. And I mean, it's just like, really? I mean, really? When we, when we go back to the life of Jesus, we talk about tax collectors. What do we talk about? Bad sinners. They're so bad, they have their own category of sinner. Who did Jesus hang out with? Sinners? No. Tax collectors and sinners. They have their own category. That's bad. Right? Tax collectors and sinners. And so, so now, all of a sudden, 
Because of this, you also pay taxes. Why do you pay taxes? Because you want to be able to pick up the phone and say, somebody is trying to break in my house. Because you want to pick up the phone and say, there's something going wrong on my street. There's somebody who's being hit. There's somebody who's being hurt. Because when somebody does something wrong, you want a judge to be paid well, sitting there trying to make righteous judgments, trying to lead a jury in order to make that person guilty and get what they deserve, at least in the earthly sense of how God's wrath works out. For because of this, you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Whether they know it or not, whether they know it or not, that's what they're doing. And now we don't want to put them in, in the wrong kind of authority or somehow deify their role or, or, or whatever else. We've got to be careful. In America, we do this. We, we, we don't just have presidents. We have saviors. We've got to knock it off. We just have to knock it off because that's not what they're there for. But they are ministers of God taking those taxes Using them poorly often, but generally speaking, they're paying the police officers, you know, they're paying the governmental authorities, they're paying the judges, they're paying whatever, all these things that are in place. I want them to have really awesome weapons. I want them to have tasers, I want them to have beanbag guns, I want them to have water hoses to spray down protesters or whatever. I want them to have all those things and I pay my taxes so that God can take care of me. So when we think about taxes, we have to be very careful to not kind of pull back and go, well, the government's abusing the tax system and it's taking too much and it's doing, Jesus paid taxes, right? Out of fish vomit. However you want to put it, you guys remember the, if you don't know the passage, look it up. It's awesome. Um, so, so, you know, taxes, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Paul here says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Revenue may be kind of a sort of a, an indirect tax, you know, like a, like a duty or something like that. Um, and, and so what's owed? What's necessary? What are we supposed to do? Just, just pay it. I get that we're Americans and we have a system in which we can change things and so we like to complain a lot and all of that. But at the end of the day, if you want to have peace, realize why the government's there and that your job is not to say, use my taxes correctly or you don't get them. Because if only 10% of them are used right, that's probably somewhere around the right number. Um, guess how important that 10% is in your life. If without it, your life, your family has no protection has lost control, is in trouble. Just trust me, it is. And so we not only pay taxes to those whom it's owed and pay revenues to those whom it's owed, but then we also pay respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. We are then to give to those whom it is due. We talk about the office of president, right? Or um, when, uh, when, when the Republicans have their, their, their little debates and stuff and Gingrich comes up, what do they call him? Mr. Gingrich? What do they call him? Mr. Speaker. Speaker Gingrich. Is he the Speaker of the House? No, but yes. He is forevermore the Speaker. And so there's a kind of honor that is given. We don't just, you know, I wouldn't walk up to him and say, hey, Barack, you want to go play some hoops? You know? 
I wouldn't do that. I'd be, oh, I'm a little jittery. I'm a little scared. I, you know, I'm standing in front of the, this is the president, man. This is the dude that, you know, with one waggle of a finger could mess up my whole life and mess up my whole family and mess up my whole world. Not because he's bad, but because he has that authority, he has that place, he has that power. And so this is not one of my favorite passages to preach. If I was to preach what I wanted to preach, I would have probably skipped it over because it's like, ah, this isn't very fun. But it is absolutely what is necessary for us. And, and now let me just say it this way. There are bad governments. There's time, there's time to resist. There's time to rebel. There's time to reject. There's time for upheaval. There's time for overturn. There's time for all of those things. But remember, that may mean your death. And in a sense, it is the wrath of God. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You can sort of righteously be going against what the government is saying, and yet at the same time you're suffering the consequences of government being there. But there is a time when we realize, what is, what is in Acts, uh, I think it's Peter who says, you decide, are we to obey you or obey God? Talking to governmental authorities, you know, leaders who could do things to them, punish them, hurt them, kill them. Who should we obey, you or God? You decide. In other words, you know. You know how it's supposed to work. So there are times when we disobey. But guess how many of the apostles were killed? This is the world that we live in. It's not perfect. But the government is there for a purpose. Let's let it function well. And let's also remember that by paying your taxes, you are, in a sense, loving well. This is an expression of love. In that we are thankful to God that he has given us this kind of protection. We're going to stand. Uh, let's best stand together. We're going to sing. Jerry's going to come up and he's going to play one last song for us. Let's sing with all of our hearts. Let's sing with our voices. Let's sing loud. Before we sing, let's ask God um, to help us.